Sunny moments can be fleeting at this time of year, but they are all the sweeter for it. A bright garden breakfast or coffee snatched on a south-facing terrace can feel like an elixir. And so, if March is a month for new beginnings and shedding our winter skin, it's also about reinvention and that sense of unique possibility that comes with longer light evenings and treasured moments of warmth. This episode of Confect Corner will follow suit, exploring themes of early spring and a sense of vernal opportunity. There are not many reporters who are willing to spend four hours in a hot box being rubbed with ashes and honey before jumping into an icy lake, but we appreciate the efforts of Finnish correspondent Petri Burtsov, who did just that for our report on Estonian sauna culture. As blossom trees burst into colour, our report on L'Oreal's The Art and Science of Fragrance Festival in Paris lifts the lid on the alchemy of scent creation and explores the hitherto secret world of making perfumes. Reporter Paige Reynolds takes to the rails on a historic British Pullman to bring us a dispatch from the riotous Carriage Club, where music, theatre and peerless hospitality come together. And our audio essayist reflects on the power of owning your own look amongst the fashion set, the power of remaining distinct in a world led by trends. This is Confet Corner, and I'm your host, Sophie Grove. This is like a safe space where you can really connect with yourself and feel very alive. Clubs kept being shut down in Soho and Mayfair were being raided by the police, so they were always a bit like having to find a kind of raided warehouse where they, where they would take their audience and all the cabaret acts because they were a bit risque. Well, this tour gives you the chance to see designers' new collections, it also allows you to assess what their choices of venues, of the kind of people who make it onto their guest lists, say about the city that they inhabit and the creative community that they belong to. Welcome to Confect Corner. I'm your host, Sophie Grove, in London. For this month's episode, I'm joined here in the studio by Gillian Devias and by Marcella Palak in Zurich. Hello to you both. Hello, nice to be back in studio with you, Sophie. Welcome Hello. back from your travels. Hello, Marcella. <laughs> Hello, Sophie. Hello, Gillian. Caught in between two fashion weeks. But as regular listeners will know, we like to start by talking about what we've seen on our travels. Uh, let's start with you, Marcella. What do you have for us today? Well, I'm just back from rainy and very cold Milan Fashion Week. One of the highlights I'd like to share with you is the second Bali collection under creative director Simone Bellotti. As I grew up in Zurich and know the Swiss brand since always, my first proper leather shoes were from Bali, I might have another view on it. So Swiss alpine elements might get cliché very easily, but this was not the case at all. So I saw perfectly tailored green loden coats and jackets, flat, solid shoes, wild lambskin on the whole back of a jumper and jacket, and small silver coins, cows and little bells on the black leather. It looked very, very chic. But of course, these pieces will look more exotic in London than maybe in Lucerne or Thun. <laughs> and how about you, Sophie? Well, I have been in Warsaw, a whole group of us from Monocle and Confect went over to Poland for a series of shows and meetings and 
parties, which was amazing. But it was such an amazing experience for me because I was there for a good chunk of time and I was exploring a lot of the different kind of retail spots and meeting designers, meeting photographers. And there was just such an essence of the city and such a sense of creativity in the fashion realm. There's a, a little area called Mokotovska Street where you walk along and it's, it does feel a little bit Berlin, these kind of big, beautiful Art Nouveau buildings, but then kind of graffiti and rain. <laughs> it feels very former Soviet, but then there's a sense you go into every little shop. It's a Polish brand made in Poland with a beautiful independent spirit, incredible quality, real strong identity. The whole street is like that. And I started feeling quite envious towards Warsaw at some moments because of that real sense of, you know, independence that they seem to have in, in retail, fashion retail. It's interesting. I've 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 never been to Poland, but people always sort of steer me to Krakow if I go because I say that's where the creativity is and that's where you should go. So I'm interested to hear that that you sense that there was a real sort of burgeoning sort of creative scene in Warsaw. We had an amazing party, which was in the former. In fact, you've been there, Marcella, but it was the former kind of um, canteen for the ballet school. A beautiful natural wine bar owned by this amazing architect and film producer. Really, a sense of creativity in that space. But um, I met Sofia Shalak, who is this really great accessory designer. And she studied art history. She lived around the world. She went back and she's making these bags. And I got one. But every single pole has one of those bags. And it's a talking point. It's, but it's also a piece of national identity, really. Mm. It's very proudly worn. You don't see Polish women, you know, who care about fashion, really, with any other bag. <laughs> and if they do, it's made in Poland. So I thought it was really interesting and a compelling almost example for other nations to follow because there is that sense of really those certainly Zofia's products are unrivaled in their quality made in southern Poland and they and she's done this great shoot with some really sort of wonderful folkloric costume but then you know juxtaposed with her pieces so it was really great and I came back feeling very kind of galvanised by the whole thing. But tell me where you've been. I know you've been farther than all of us, Gillian. Oh, well, I took my 11-hour flight to um, Mexico City. I went there for Zenomaca, which is the Art Week. It's the premier sort of Latin American Art Week and combines art and design. My first time in Mexico City, and it's just a wonderful opportunity to visit all the different neighbourhoods and places for the Art Week. New galleries are opening up. You get the opportunity to go behind closed doors at architects' homes. It's really, I, I, I could not recommend it more for, for, as a way to discover a city than to go it, to, to the Art Week. And uh, I decided to check out the new Soho House there, which is in a wonderful district called Juarez. And while I was wandering around this up-and-coming area, I stumbled across this beautiful bijou uh, jewellery store. It's Sophie Simon Designs, very colourful, double doors opening onto quite atmospheric shops. Sophie had a career as a, a television journalist, but her passion, ever since she was little, she always loved making jewellery. She'd sort of be given little brooches from her mother's and she'd turn them into necklaces. She decided to give up her career and really just focus on jewellery, working with Mexican artisans, using the old hot wax techniques. She's inspired by Mexico culture, Mexican culture. She's inspired by Mexican nature. She creates these very 
original pieces that you could either see yourself wearing to a fun lunch with jeans and a t-shirt or you could see them on the red carpet. They're, you know, they're really quite statement pieces. But it really, the pleasure for me is to being able to go somewhere which is one of a kind, working with artisans that not heavily but do sublimely reflect the culture and the place that you're in. Our first stop today is in Veruma in southern Estonia, where we've arrived to learn more about the region's ancient smoke sauna ritual. Comfex Petri Bertsov was joined by the Estonian director Anna Hintz, whose award-winning documentary Smoke Sauna Sisterhood explores the healing power of the sauna. We join the ritual at a local farm where, after eight hours of heating up its old smoke sauna, the sauna master... Adia Waroya initiated the age-old Estonian ritual. Let's join them. With the beat of her drum and by singing ancient spiritual chants, Eda Veroja marks the beginning of the four-hour smoke sound ritual at the Moska farm in southern Estonia. The sun has set over the snowy hills of Veruma, and we have made our way to the lakeside sauna, guided by the soft golden glow of the lanterns. As we enter the sauna, a subtle scent of smoke welcomes us as we take a seat on simple wooden planks. Using a cup-shaped ladle, Veroja gently pours water onto large hot stones stacked on top of the stove. A warm humidity fills the room in an act that the locals call Lona. The smoke sauna tradition in this part of Estonia is thousands of years old and has been recognized by UNESCO as intangible cultural heritage of humanity. It is also the subject of the Estonian director Anna Hintz, award-winning documentary film Smoke Sauna Sisterhood, which tells the story of a group of Estonian women for whom the sauna serves as both a refuge and as a place of healing and forming bonds. Hintz has joined us for today's ritual, and I ask her what it is about the smoke sauna that gives it such strong healing power. This is um, like a safe space where you can really connect with yourself and with actually everything around and feel very alive. That's a place where you can be totally vulnerable, naked body but also naked soul. For us uh, here, um, smoke sauna spirituality is connected to the bigger spirituality where, for example, we have different understanding of time. Time is not linear, but time is like cyclic. So when you enter a smoke sauna, it's like past and future and present are all there. And for me, it's like entering into this kind of dark cosmic womb that can hold everything, where we can share absolutely all em- emotions and experiences and be heard and seen. I, I know no other place like smoke sauna, really. Mm-hmm. 
in the sauna, we rub and purify our bodies with honey, salt and ash, chanting age-old folk songs and spells. In between the sessions, we swim in the icy lake, gazing at the starry winter skies as we let our bodies overcome the initial thermal shock. Some are so overcome with tranquility, others with emotion, that they retreat to the nearby log cabin and the warm glow of its log-burning iron stove to sleep and to sip on Veroja's homemade lavender tea. She then enlists the help of her husband Urmas to gently slap our bodies with the sauna whisk made of birch leaves. It leaves a magical scent of forest onto the skin. It's ritual of both physical and mental cleansing, as Veroja explains. My old aunt, uh, my father's side, grandmother's sister, she always said that before you go to sauna, you exhale and you leave all uh, the knowledge and all the desires and all the emotions outside. You empty yourself and you step into the sauna like you are born without any expectations, without any thoughts, uh, and then you start to listen what comes, and uh, it makes the sauna. For the people of Veruma, the sauna has always been a part of life, serving sometimes very practical purposes such as providing the women of these rural communities a clean place in which to give birth, and sometimes more spiritual ones, such as anointing the dead or finding solace in the face of trauma. But sauna has also been a very private matter, even spiritual one. And as such, it was only after it gained the UNESCO status and after the popularity of Hintz's film that the Estonian smoke sauna has become more widely known around the world. I asked Hintz what smoke sauna means to her and why it was important for her to make this film. Like where I really realized that on this earth there is a safe space where absolutely all your emotions and experiences can be shared. And I realized when we give voice to our story and when we give space to hear other stories, other experiences, then there is huge healing power. And that's uh, warmth and that knowledge, that, that deep knowledge inside me of that space. Like I carry it wherever I go. And uh, that that safety and warmth has have carried me through challenges in life also. And I realized that this is very special. And uh, that's why I also wanted to do this film, to share it with humanity. Because as humans, all of us, we need this kind of space. Four hours have passed and I feel thoroughly cleansed and relaxed. After the ritual, we lie on rug-lined wooden benches of the dressing room in silence, drinking herbal tea, some of us drifting in and out of consciousness. Am I dreaming, or is this all real? I ask myself. Through the smoke sound ritual, I have connected with something ancient and eternal. It's a very powerful feeling and one that grounds you in a way that not much in this world can. For Confect in Veru, Southern Estonia, I'm Petri Burtsov. Mm-hmm.
Now, for many of us, there's a certain kind of glamour and romance associated with a lengthy train ride. But nowhere is that more elevated than on board Belmont's historic British Pullman, the sister train to the Orient Express. In recent years, the luxury hospitality and leisure group has been branching out into the ever-expanding world of immersive entertainment. And starting this year, they've got a whole new passenger experience in their arsenal. Convex Paige Reynolds went along for the ride and sent us this fly-on-the-wall report. Zigzagging through the throngs of commuters on a Tuesday evening in London's Victoria Station, it all seemed like business as usual. However, the closer I got to Platform 1, the more stolen glimpses of sequins under overcoats I saw. And once the clip-clop of smart shoes was accompanied by swing jazz, I knew I'd landed in the right place. This, my friends, is no ordinary train ride. Welcome to the Carriage Club. A dreamy collaboration between luxury hospitality giant Belmond and private drama events, the eight carriages of this historic British Pullman train host what is billed as London's first cabaret train, though it really is so much more. As I stepped inside Minerva, my Greek goddess-named carriage for the night, I was met by a glamorous wash of purple and green jacket chairs, Edwardian-style marquetry and a very attentive waiter by the name of Artur. A man who well and truly understood the brief of unlimited Verve Clicquot. Tucked away in a gilded coupe, pondering the first of five courses on offer, I caught up with the train's manager, Adam Hill, who told me a little more about its storied history. So here you are sat in Minerva. This was actually Winston Churchill's favourite carriage. It was one carriage that he very much used to travel on out of personal choice, where he used to go on royal and uh, political arrangements throughout the country. Um, it was also used for the Royal Festival of Britain. So that was a festival that the government put together to bring everyone together to celebrate after World War II, and it was a carriage that he selected to form part of that rake. And it was actually the first carriage that I came on as well. So a little bit of history, I came on for my 21st birthday, Probably, as you can guess, two years ago. Not, not really, but, you know, a few years back, my nan brought me on as a gift, um, and I actually sat in Minerva a few seats back for my first time on the British Pullman, where we had a beautiful afternoon tea and brunch. So, yeah, it's a carriage that's been here in the rake um, for many, many years and can tell many, many stories if fools could speak. He also told me about the Art Deco-inspired five-course menu, expertly crafted by head chef John Freeman. So we have a beautiful prawn and lobster cocktail, something quite old school, something quite chic to start with. We also then introduced the saffron risotto as the intermediate course. We wanted to get some saffron that was locally sourced and managed to find um, a supplier up in Norfolk. We have then the beautiful beef course with a beautiful sort of old school um, twist in the plating. You have the green beans wrapped in the cured meat, so it really creates that element of chicness and classic uh, plating of that era, so something quite unique. And then the barba will be your sweet tooth fix, which will be with a beautiful apple brandy and cream and then a beautiful selection of cheese. So it's something that you have to really be careful is to make sure you save room for cheese. <laughs> Always. <laughs> Always. It's essential. It's essential. Wow. 
Without further ado, the evening's entertainment began as our host Sammy got the carriage warmed up just in time for burlesque starlet Golden Arrow to take centre stage. Over the course of the evening, eight acts were to slink through the carriages and delight us with their talents. From the card sharp's wicked sleight of hand to Lady Lucille's charming ukulele renditions, there was a clever mix of the weird, the wonderful and the somewhat cheeky, which brought a light and playful mood to proceedings. I promised you a little bit of burlesque tonight. Oh, yes! Am I taking my clothes off? You should be so lucky. <laughs> and with every item of clothing this lady takes off, I need you to make a round of applause, okay? Of course, none of this happened by chance. The team at Private Drama Events took direct inspiration from the Devonshire restaurant, an iconic 1920s haunt where all-night gaiety was promised. Adam Blackwood, the company's founder, was next to alight at my table. He gave me a deeper understanding of how the show came together. So it seemed to me, having run a murder mystery on the train and stepped into the 50s, we thought it would be really fun uh, to journey back a little bit further to the 20s and 30s and when uh, nightclub was at its height, height um, in the West End of London. So clubs like the Shim Sham Club, the In Out Club, the Devonshire Club, which was part of our inspiration, and then thought, well, those people just come of an evening and enjoy cabaret. And there were, there's great evidence of people that were doing that, going for having a fantastic dinner. And we thought, actually, it would be great fun if people uh, came on a train. No one's done this before and had a train. What might be the reason that that would happen? And then we, through a bit more research, discovered that clubs kept being shut down in Soho and Mayfair were being raided by the police. So they were always a bit like having to find a kind of raided warehouse where they, where they would take their audience and all the cabaret acts because they were a bit risque. So we thought, well, actually, this might be this idea that they will have been raided by a, uh, by a club in the West End. Where better to find a secret place to put out a cabaret than on a train? So here, all our guests are coming as escapees from the West End. The secret nod, get on the train, and the cabaret goes wild as they move out of London and no one can catch them. So that's the inspiration. As I nipped into the corridor to meander through the other carriages, and it's now rather merry passengers, I caught up with the Brighton Bells, who were readying themselves for their fifth performance of the night. Adorned in gem-encrusted leotards, flapper skirts, opera gloves and headpieces, they gave me a behind-the-scenes lowdown of their mesmerising double act. an identical twin dancing duo so we're going to come out and we're going to do a lovely little dance number um, but we're also Cheers. we're also fighting over the same man yes there's a love triangle going on and he is on the carriage yeah yes. i've seen him already the, the sorcerer. sorcerer and and he's mine but apparently he's mine actually oh right so yeah we're going to be acting out a bit of our love triangle that we've got going on um and then yes, we, we do a slightly seductive semi-striptease, just gloves, skirts, but it's all about the dancing. Very vintage, flapper-esque. Yes. But we are essentially a silent act, like silent movie-esque. Um, so a lot of our things that we do is through mime. So being very playful uh, with the guests, kind of miming to them. We have a photo of our 
love interest, the sorcerer, Tarek. Um, and then we, yes, we kind of discover that we both have the same love interest and we're furious, all in mime. All in mime. <laughs> um, and the only yeah. other way that we communicate, if not through mime and gesture, is through handwritten notes that we're giving to the guests. Only some guests, only special guests are getting handwritten notes. Some of them have got little tell the truth, do a dare, you look fabulous, things like that. Things to just get people more in the mood after we've left. And it's not only the Brighton Bells that weave the audience into their stories. One of the most special things about the Carriage Club is how the passengers become an active part of the show, entwined and enthralled by the acts in equal measure. Just before we pull back into Victoria Station, the sense of escapism I've found for the past four hours really hits home. It's a little hard to put into words what makes the experience so unique, but Adam Blackwood does a rather good job. One is the whole sense of romance about travel, and films around trains, Brief Encounter, um, it, it is, or um, 39 Steps, or things that have something happens on a train, or, of course, Murder on the, uh, on the Orange Express. Something happens on a train, your life a bit changes, and you, you come and sit down, you say goodbye to the world outside and then something happens something transforms people you look out the window some wonderful act comes and entertains you and maybe that changes your mood and so by the time you return to London you feel a little bit different so it's a sense of escapism and I think the the other thing is that so much of an audience now are looking for an experience the appetite if you think about what's going on in the West End about that kind of immersive experience and so for example the Kit Kat club the uh, cabaret which is a west end musical but turned into an experience around a found venue or you will find that la clique show which pops up its show in leicester square so a lot of those artists we draw that inspiration we create their own acts here that they they only you'll only see these acts in this manner on this train you won't find them anywhere else and that's part of the magic for confect in my finest evening wear i'm paige reynolds Well, thank you, Paige. And the first of nine exclusive The Carriage Club dinners will take place on Friday, the 31st of May, 2024. Gillian, are you a fan of immersive experiences like this? Well, I've never done them, but oh my, listening to that report, I just think I would adore to be on a train and have a train experience. But I suppose the closest thing I've had to an immersive experience is a rather large one, which was the the Venice Carnival, where I stumbled into Venice off a train not knowing Carnival was on. And suddenly you are in this masked ball in this beautiful city where everyone goes all out to dress up in costumes and masks and you get completely taken away by this otherworldliness of an experience and I think you know I just happened upon it but I think one year I would love to actually get this grand costume and and experience carnival. Mm, I'm joining you. (laughs) (laughs) But how about you Sophie you know do you think there's something alluring about being on board a historic train? I do. I mean, I think it's an amazing thing to be in that space. The design is incredible, the motion. I rather like, you know, these immersive theatre experiences. Punch Drunk is an amazing company in London, and I've been to a lot of their events and kind of super strange and wonderful promenade performances that always change your perspectives. I think you definitely have to be in the right mood. (laughs) You have to be, you know 
committed to the concept and going with the concept rather than against it. No scepticism is allowed. <laughs> Marcella, tell us, do you like an immersive promenade performance? I had a theatre experience once. We were all driven in a bus. We couldn't see anything. We had like dark bondos in front of our eyes. We went to a house and um, there was a theatre in taking place each scene in another room. And we had no idea the audience was about like 20, 30 people, where we are, where this house is. And it was just amazing. You felt part of it. You felt almost like you have to act yourself. So I, I love those immersive 360 degrees dive-in experiences. It sounds borderline traumatic, but then that's the point, isn't it? <laughs> I think they might, they might just freak me out with the blindfold on the bus. But, I mean, it sounds, once you've got to the other end of it, I once went to a, an all-night performance of Jason and Medea where they put you to bed like a t little tiny child and you could you were meant to hear your parents arguing in the next room. And it was so really evocative. You felt like you were six. Then after about four hours, I did start to feel a bit fatigued. <laughs> <laughs> and left. No, I didn't. I, yeah. said, um, I left pretty much nearly to the end. <laughs> There's no doubt that the world of scent and perfumery is a fascinating one. So it should come as no surprise that the world's top fashion and cosmetic brands are all dedicated to leaving their mark in this field and to help turn it into a more sustainable one. Take French powerhouse L'Oreal, for example, which earlier this month hosted its first event dedicated to scent. The Art and Science of Fragrance exhibition gathered industry experts, designers and luxury consultants at the Carousel du Louvre in Paris to debate the future of the industry, which brands are leading the way and the importance of fragrance in luxury and hospitality. Confex Julia Webster Ayuso went along to sniff out the event for us. As well as the world's largest cosmetics company, L'Oreal is a perfume-making powerhouse with a portfolio including brands like Prada, Lancome and Yves Saint Laurent. To showcase the intricate process behind its iconic fragrances, from extracting scents to the design of perfume bottles, L'Oreal recently hosted the exhibition The Art and Science of Fragrance in Paris. The president of L'Oreal Lux, Cyril Chapuis, began by telling us about what makes a luxury scent. First, exceptional quality, and you need a, 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 a juice which not only is amazing when you first smell it, but also it's going to last. It's going to have a rendition on skin which is very optimized and it's important because you can do a pretty basic juice that just smells on for, let's say, 10-15 minutes, but the fragrance is going to last until the evening is very complex, it's technical. So, uh, quality of the juice. Then what does a fragrance is the emotion it creates. Is it new? Is it different? Is it something you've never smelled before? And this is, for me, where creativity is, is critical in this um, industry. And then, obviously, you need a beautiful object because people love having France, which is showcased in their bathroom or their living room. They, they don't hide it in a, in, a, in a drawer. They love to showcase it. So you need a beautiful design. You need a statement. You need to elevate a bit the, 
the lifestyle or the design of people's house with the France ball. The exhibition held in the Carousel de Louvre for a group of international journalists and buyers takes us through a series of rooms where each brand plunges us into a different step of the process of making a perfume. From organic farming to refillable perfume bottles, the exhibition also emphasizes the steps L'Oreal is taking to make its process less harmful to the environment. In partnership with French scent company Cosmo International Fragrances, the company has developed a new scent extraction process that uses just air, an alternative to the traditional distillation process. Patricia Soyer, International Director of Green Perfumery at L'Oréal, and Yannick Maestro, Director at Cosmo International Ingredients, explain what this new technology involves. So this uh, new extraction is really revolutionary because it collects the fresh bloom of the flowers. We call it Osmo Bloom, and it fulfills the perfumer dream. The perfumer dream is really to be able to capture and to collect the fresh scents of the fresh flower. So it preserves the integrity of the flower scent. And I will let Yannick explain the process. The flowers are, are processed uh, in the machine for 24 hours. A uh, continuous flow of air gathers all the flowers' fragrant molecules uh, coming from the flowers and draws them directly into a, a biosourced liquid where the molecules, volatile molecules, are uh, absorbed and collected. Uh, this is where we have our final ingredients. So we really gathered exactly the smell, the molecules coming from the flower. This is the pure smell of a flower. Uh, the machine is uh, very uh, sober in energy. Uh, we don't use any solvent, we don't eat anything, and there is no contact between the flowers and any liquids or anything else. So the flowers are really intact at the end of the process and could be reused in, in other, for other processes like cosmetic or a classical process of uh, uh, flower extraction for perfumery, for example. There is one thing as well, that it's a sustainable process because it does not uh, consume any water as well. So there is no water, no heat, mm -hmm. and no any chemical transformation. There is no chemical transformation. So concerning the scent, what you have at the end in the extract is you smell directly the flower as it is fresh in the field. So you smell the flower versus for classical extract, you smell more a transformation and more the scent, the fragrance of the flower. So here you really smell directly the flower. Part of the fragrance industry's success is that it's also becoming an important element in hospitality, with some hotels even creating their own signature scents. Cyril Chapuis tells us more about this trend and why he thinks it has become so successful. Memories, emotion, a fragrance, and we've done quite a few extensive surveys about this. Fragrances create different emotions, certain juices, create an exhilarating emotion. Some others are more, uh, as you say, recessive, take you to memories, etc. So fragrances are very linked to emotions. And experience uh, and emotions are very, uh, are very linked. That's why I think the, the whole hospitality business is very interested in, uh, in, in developing more fragrances.
I have two brands in the portfolio who really are very advanced on that, the Armani brand, where Mr. Armani has created for all his hotels uh, the famous Bois d'Ensemble, which is one of the products of Armani Privé, and which is diffused in all his hotels worldwide because he really wants uh, his hotels to smell like Armani. And Bois d'Ensemble is his signature juice. So if it's, and I have a second brand which is very much in this trend, which is Ease Up, which is a brand we acquired, as you know, recently, and which is uh, uh, features in all the most uh, sophisticated and elegant uh, hotels worldwide or, or restaurants worldwide because they, uh, uh, Isop considers fragrance as part of the elevated lifestyle. Hospitality is elevated lifestyle. Fragrance can be part of it. In a signal to what the future of luxury fragrance might hold, as part of the exhibition, Valentino unveiled its first high perfumery collection, an exclusive range of Italian inspired scents that will be released later this year. Chapri tells us that younger generations are increasingly attuned to fragrances and that demand for ultra-prestige scents like these is growing. I have extremely uh, good vibes regarding the future of the front. Why? Because the young generation is even crazier about fragrances than their parents. Um, uh, in both sides of the world, in the West, but also which is very new in China. You know, China used to be a very low consumer of fragrances. The generation of above 40 were not really comfortable with fragrances. The new generation loves fragrances. Why? Because it's a way of self-expression. Uh, you, through fragrance, you can express the way you feel, you can express the way you want to be. Uh, and by the way, they love having fragrance wardrobes, what they call fragrance wardrobes. They have five, six, seven different juices. And depending on the occasions, they use one or the other, or they even mix them. And this is very exciting. So the new generations are way crazier about fragrances than, uh, uh, than their parents. And two, they love quality. They, they are very expert, they are very educated on fragrances, much more than the previous generation. It's thanks to uh, social channels like TikTok, where the perfume talk is 5 billion views. And it's all about expertise. So they know how to analyze the juice, decompose, uh, feel like, oh, this one has more patchouli, this one has more verbena, etc. So they are ready to invest in, I would say, more uh, expensive, sophisticated fragrances because they are experts. From harvesting to packaging, the art and science of fragrance showcases the expertise required to create luxury perfume and places L'Oreal firmly at the centre of this booming industry. For Confect in Paris, I'm Julia Websrayuso. And finally, we turn to the European fashion circuit as writer Natalie Theodosi muses back on her first few weeks on the road this year and the importance of having your own distinctive look. When you work in fashion, a typical year might begin with a European tour that takes you from Florence and Milan to Paris, Copenhagen and then London. While this tour gives you the chance to see designers' new collections, it also allows you to assess what their choices, of venues, of the kind of people who make it onto their guest lists, say about the city that they inhabit and the creative community that they belong to. This year's Autumn Winter Fashion Weeks took me from the Palazzo Vecchio in Florence to Parisian landmarks such as the Ecole Militaire. But there's something special about attending these types of get-togethers in your own city. The moments of whimsy on the runway merge with your daily routine, 
giving you an opportunity to see your city from a new perspective. Last Saturday, I began my morning as I usually do, with a strong black coffee at my local cafe, Iran, and a long list of errands. But in between my mundane tasks, I dropped by Molly Goddard's show at Cecil Sharp House, a folk music and dance centre near Regent's Park. As my neighbours headed for the nearby bakery to pick up their lunchtime pastries, a group of women, artists, musicians, actors and writers, walked in the opposite direction, towards the Red Brick Art Centre. They were all dressed in Goddard's creations, some in eccentric tool maxi skirts, others pairing casual shirts with intarjanid vests. On the runway, Goddard presented reworked versions of her signature looks, including oversized knitwear and blouses in striking burgundy and dusty pink. But the designer also had fun contrasting these looks with simpler pieces such as ballet flats and cotton basics. The audience couldn't stop smiling as the spectacle unfolded. That evening, Irish designer Simone Roche's autumn winter show at St. Bartholomew Church offered up variations of her own trademark look and riffed on Queen Victoria's morning dress. Thin strands of pearls, puff sleeve dresses, delicately embroidered blazers and regal fur shawls. Rosha created an almost mystical atmosphere. Her devotees sat captivated on the church's narrow benches, wearing the brand's bow-embellished pinafore dresses and clutching its popular pearl bags. Having entered these two designer separate worlds on the same day, I was reminded of the importance of having a look that's distinctly your own. The work of Goddard and Rosha affirm the value of staying true to yourself and your aesthetic. It's the most reliable way to create communities of customers who collect your designs and attend your shows every season. And inevitably, friendships will be formed along the way and creative ideas exchanged. That's when fashion and London are at their best. That was writer Natalie Theodosi. Marcella, you also trod the Fashion Week circuit, as we heard at the start of the show. Um, do you agree with Natalie's view on signature looks? Absolutely. I think it's so interesting to see personal interpretations of designer pieces. Wearing a Chanel bag paired with an old chunky sweater or your favourite trench coat, I think this is really interesting. The mix of new things with personal wardrobe favorites makes a look unique and distinctive. It's interesting, um, when you're at fashion shows and on the road, you always see that a lot of the journalists and buyers, they are really their own person and they don't follow trends. Gillian, you've worked a lot with Chanel. Um, do you think these events are very good for you know, actually breaking ground creatively? I think so, because also you have uh, such a unique opportunity to mingle with this very select but invested audience of writers or buyers or even fashion historians. And often because the shows 
are half an hour or an hour late. You engage in conversations that you may not at parties or cocktails because you're literally waiting. And you find you make firm friends and firm professional contacts because everyone has this common interest, but coming at it from a different perspective, talking about the last show, talking about the next show, talking about the show they saw three years ago, cross-pollinating ideas and experiences. And it is one of the most stimulating things you can do is wait half an hour or an hour for a show to start. I mean, I feel like it's a funny... I feel ambivalent about it because you do explore the city a lot. But then there does... Send this kind of seems kind of crazy that so many people move from one side of the city to another in usually a convoy of sort of like rather elegant black cars um, going from an abandoned warehouse to an amazing arena and then back somewhere else. Actually, what I love about this monologue and Natalie's feeling of being in London, just trotting about, you know, she's in Cecil Sharp House, which is a lovely venue with so much history, but she just kind of moseys over there. She knows where she's going. Whereas sometimes when you're at Fashion Week and you're kind of hopping from one side of the city to another with not much sense of kind of navigation, (laughs) it can be less orientating, even though there's a lot of discovery in it. But sometimes the... Venues themselves are so exceptional and you'll only ever get access to them at a show like that, that you really do see a different side of the city because you're going behind closed doors and you're seeing spaces that have a have a history and a heritage. I know that Marcella loves that moment of creation when the show starts, even if it's just six minutes. You can't get enough, can you, Marcella? Yeah, and, and I talked with somebody like you You mentioned, Gillian, with my neighbour uh, at Chilsander, where we waited actually like for an hour until it starts, <laughs> but not due to the designers, but due there was a, a demonstration for peace in, in Milan and it was a big house. But um, we talked and I said... Um, I lose completely the the feeling for time during a show because you are so concentrated to discover all the new things, the shapes, the music, the movement, the models, everything that you don't know at the end if the show was taking place for half an hour or just 10 minutes. I just love that. I think that's our theme, immersion. (laughs) Yeah, transportative, like art (laughs) which you certainly get sometimes at the best best shows and I think I hope your next week will include many of them Martella well that brings us to the end of this episode of Confect Corner my thanks to Julian Tobias and Marcella Palak for joining me once more Confect Corner is produced and edited by Carlotta Ribello and Christy O'Grady with editing assistance by Steph Chungu We'll be back next month with more, but until then, from me, Sophie Grove, goodbye and thanks for listening.